Blog Talk Radio. discuss with our political panelists and analysts what's going on in our world and the community 
Fallback Part 2, What Is This? And then the second half of the program, we will start our tribute with Kwame Ture, and we invite you to call in if you have any stories or any memories or anything that you would like to honor Brother Ture by calling in at 323-679-0841. That's the order for the program tonight. At this point in time, what we're going to do is we're going to play this song right here in, in remembrance honor of Brother Kwame Ture, who fought so hard to raise the identity question among our people to get us to properly understand who we are. So at this point in time, we're going to pause to honor our brother at this point in time with this particular record. Identity of an African 
that was a message and a legacy that Brother Kwame Ture tried to instill in his people by making them understand very importantly that they are Africans and they should be proud of it and they have a glorious history in which they never should be ashamed of their history in their home. We will be doing a tribute later on in honor of Brother Kwame Ture, Revolutionary Forever. But at this point in time, what we're going to do is we're going to introduce our political panelists and analysts for today's program, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in your world and the community. And you can join us for the segment by calling in 323-679-0841. So let's get started with this party. Our first particular uh, analyst panelist for today, we'd like to welcome Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is <coughs> Haki Kamafi Mishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And, you know, of course, you know my thing is all about institution building. But I tell you, Brother Africa, one of the things I think is important, uh, when we look at it in terms of spectacle that they call the so-called presidential election, it's very, very clear that we should understand the role of the Democratic Party. Many of us are under deception or misbelief that somehow the Democratic Party, in fact, stands for something. But in fact, when you look at the history, it's very, very clear the Democratic Party has always been opportunistic and uncaring in terms of, you know, enforcing this platform. But in any event, Brother Africa, I want you to listen to this. The Democratic Party's origin is less than stellar. And the origin, its origin lies in the plutocratic, excuse me, plutocratic politics which sanctioned the enslavement of African people which is focused on profits over humanity. Originally in 1828, its first Democratic candidate-elect, President Andrew Jackson was responsible for crimes against humanity, including mass extermination of indigenous Indian tribes, specifically the Cherokee Nation. Inhumanity aside, Jackson Corp believes that wealth has an inherent right to run government for its benefits is an idea central to the Democratic Party's platform in the 21st century. The Democratic Party is often presented as an alternative to republicanism. The reality is quite different. The easiest way to substantiate the reality is to look at the Pew study around Democratic, Republican, philosophical divide. But just as the both parties were asked this question, given politicians who compromise versus politicians who stand on principles, which do you support? While Republicans overwhelmingly responded principle, while the Democrats overwhelmingly responded compromise. Now, compromise is exactly what the political, excuse me, Democratic politicians bring to the table. Implicit in compromise is the notion you as a party are operating from a point of weakness. How could this be? It is a well-established fact that most of the citizenry in the U.S. lean democratic. If democracy is philosophically egalitarianistic, the greatest group and the greatest number, how should we account for democratic leadership that receives itself with a weaker hand? An indication of this perceived weakness was the Biden's campaign attempt to attract conservative voters by ignoring the huge coalition of voters and their concerns. So concerns like universal basic income, housing, employment, all those things is important to its coalition. They could have very easily, you know, won this election, but yet they chose to ignore those issues. So the question arises, who interests do they serve? Now, if votes, if votes, if potential votes translates into power, certainly Democrats will have immense power. Looking back at President Obama's first term as president, both Senate and House of Representatives were controlled by Democrats. A perfect time to pursue a comprehensive jobs plan, reduction in military expenditures, and curtailing corporate abuse, along with laws outlawing Wall Street monopolistic practices that destroyed the economy within. Ironically, no such legislation was offered by the Democratic Party leadership or the president himself. If these failures were not enough, 
The drain on the national treasury continued in any discussion on taxing the rich by the Democratic administration was avoided. The question has to be asked, as Democratic leadership does not serve the interests of the electorate, whose interests do they serve? Now, architects of the U.S. Constitution have always been clear whose interests the Constitution serves. Republican leadership has always been aware whose interest is enshrined in the Constitution. From the Federalist Party to the Democratic Republican Party or the Anti-Federalist Party, the realization that capital would define the foundation of American political institutions, not democracy. Ensuring allegiance to the Constitution and safeguarding against proscription, in other words, repealing the Constitution, was relatively simple. The realization wealthy individuals would be beneficiaries of a political economics arrangement proved prophetic when Jackson implemented a spoil system in which business connections, friends, and families benefit from his presidency. This precedent of legalized corruption during Jackson's president and campaign donations and lobbying industry of today is a testament to the monetary benefits that flows to both Democrats and Republican leadership today. The Democratic Party leader presents no real value to voters. The only real value the Democratic Party leadership represents is the value to the deep state. Obvious and of a different obvious and or indifference to the plight of the poor, the liberal ideology embraced by Democratic leaders continues to obstruct any momentum forward. This is because liberalism Classically defined as about ideas only. Liberalism does not embrace economics. Example being the serial, <clears throat> the Social Democrats during the Nazi era. The Social Democrats' refusal to embrace communism was a clear indication that their political stand has less to do with the concerns of economic exploitation of excuse me, ethnic groups and the visceral hatred of such groups, but more to do with the economic gains by acquiescing to a system that was unjust at its core. By rejecting the possibility of a social democratic communist coalition, social democrats made it clear their alliance was with capitalism or the spread of fascism, which was preferable to equality in, under the Nazi regime. Now, as such, any ideology that focused on political ideas to the exclusion of economics could never address the economic crisis unfolding in the U.S. Nonetheless, nevertheless, nevertheless, the world. When Nancy Pelosi disavows socialism, she does so under the mistaken belief the masses of people are ill-enlightened and will continue to be ill-enlightened regarding socialism. Increasingly, people are asking if, the, if an alternative to brutal capitalism exists. When Democratic leaders by their actions imply there is no alternative to capitalism, they reveal their worth as useless pawns who serve the interests of power. Mass realization that both parties serve the interests of wealthy will only exacerbate an already volatile situation in the U.S. and throughout the world. And let me close by simply saying this, Brother Africa. One of the things that, you know, recently, you know, they, uh, there, was a, there was a book that was published um, by um, <clears throat> Klaus Schwab called The Great Reset. And he talks about the changes that inevitably have to take place in terms of those people in positions of power. And also to maintain that power, what they have to do to, to maintain that power. And so it's very interesting. So at the same time this book came out, there was a situation in which on uh, Fox News, uh, there was a banner that was flashed across the screen. And the, and the banner read, Coming for Blacks. Indians first, welcome to the new world order. So clearly there is, there is a lot of um, uh, uh, ritual in terms of uh, uh, ethnic groups in the society. And the question is that given the overall decline of the economy and given this kind of ritual, this kind of hatred that permeates the society, the question is what do you think is in the, in the cards, you know, in, in terms of uh, uh, what's, what's going to happen to, you know, ethnic admirers in the society? So there are those who take the position that, in fact, that uh, because this is America, nothing of any of, of any uh, of substantial nature is going to occur. Then, in fact, in America, nothing bad would never occur. 
But they, when you look at the history, of course, the reality is quite different in terms of trust that existed when particular economies are, when economies are in decline, when systems are in decline. So clearly we got to realize that this, this decline that we're witnessing, uh, you know, we understand that there are real implications in terms of our, our, our lives, our longevity in the society. So we have to become organized. We have to have institutions where we have to clearly identify what the issues are and what we're up against. Because without that understanding, then it's very difficult to forge, forge head, you know, under such you know, oppressive circumstances. And I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and venture of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. It's always an honor to have you, Brother Moses. You know, before we go to our break, um, Brother Hackey, before we go to a segment, what's going on in your world community? In your first um, presentation that you dealt with the history of the history of the Democratic Party and talk about the electoral, electoral system of the U.S., um, there are already some infighting in the Democratic Party around the issue of um, they basically neutralized and they basically neutralized and they made it so that Bernie Sanders were non-existent in this past election and campaign for this party. And part of the reason was based upon the same thing that you just articulated. They felt like many of the issues that represent uh, the combinations of the groupings that make up the coalition, make up the Democratic Party coalition, is that uh, they feel like those issues will be alienated to the kind of right-wing voters that they were trying to get to vote for um, Biden. And therefore, you know, they feel like those kind of issues would be a deterrent to attract those kind of people. So... I'm just wondering, with that kind of attitude, what are the people expecting that they think they're going to get from the Democratic Party with that type of demeanor? Very good, very good, very good point, Brother Africa. You know, one of the things is that, you know, when you talk about terms of this, this war being enacted by the Democratic Party, you know, this kind of cannibalism that exists, that currently exists, it speaks volumes in terms of the kind of opportunism or the kind of um, um, uh, classism that exists with respect to the Democratic Party, because you're absolutely correct. One of the things that, you know, what they, those who perceive as enemy in the Democratic Party are those who are progressive. It's ironic that when you look at the terms of the platform of the Democratic Party, historically, it's always prided itself on being progressive. But the mere fact that the progressives in the, in the party find themselves under attack speaks volumes in terms of the real motivation of, of the Democratic Party. So in that regard, when you look at it in terms of that kind of stand that the Democratic leadership is taking in terms of we're being adamantly opposed to the interests of the masses of people, then you can't reasonably expect these people to turn around and vote uh, or, or enact policies that's going to benefit the masses of people. It's simply not going to happen. So this is one of these, one of these, one of these realities that we have to confront when we look at the Democratic Party and understand what it is what it is. 
And for those who think, in fact, it's something that it also on the offers an alternative, it was never designed to offer an alternative. That's the whole point in terms of that piece I just I just talked about. It never was designed to offer an alternative in terms of in terms of approach. Uh, all of the stuff is is predicated on um, the the notion that um, wealth rules, and and as such. Both the Republican and Democratic Party are beholden to those missions of power, the capitalist class. And so, therefore, they do all those things in the interest of, of, the, cap, of the capitalists. So Biden is talking about additional tax cuts for the wealthy. It's, it's, it's absurd. I mean, after Trump gave them three successive cuts, three, three, excuse me, three successive cuts in terms of tax, tax breaks, he's talking about an additional cut for the wealthy. And even though those, those cuts uh, um, constitute trillions and trillions of dollars. The bottom line is there's nothing in terms of the oil economy. So the unemployment, the homelessness, the joblessness, the lack of access to quality education, all those things continue to be going downward. And so the fact is that so you give these people large sums of money, it doesn't mean that that those, that that expenditures are going to benefit the masses of people. And so therefore, the Democrats' realization, you know, that. Um, you know, there's a lot of these tax cuts for the wealthy. There's no benefit to the mass of people, but yet they go along with that six peaks values in terms of their in terms of in terms of their real motivations in terms of politics. And this is what people have to begin to understand. And so, if you think that for one second that Joe Biden's going to do anything that 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 uh, put aside the the the, the corporate agenda, then you've said mistaken. Everything he do is going to embrace the the, the corporation. Everything he do is going to embrace the military industrial complex. So what we're going to have is business as usual. Because remember, when Barack Obama was in positions of power, when he was the president, remember, he was more hawkish than, than his predecessor, George Bush. But yet, you know, he was able to get away with that simply because there was no critique in terms of Barack Obama, simply because he was a person of African, Af- African origin. People didn't critique him. They felt like, you know, it would be statistically, or, 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 or not statistically, but it certainly would be strategically unwise to go after him simply because, given the fact, being an African person, that he's under immense pressure in terms of, you know, uh, try, you know, uh, from the from the powerful in terms of fi- trying to find some means in terms of getting him out of power. And so people were hesitant to even criticize Barack Obama in terms of what he did. But clearly, Barack Obama's policies were antithetical in opposition to the interests of the masses of the people, and specifically the African community. So clearly, you know, the Republican Party has no desire whatsoever in terms of embracing those those concerns as they impact the masses of people in society. And if, and if in fact, if, if you look at it in terms of just the sheer numbers in terms of people who support, you know, progressive uh, uh, policy, that if they, if the Democratic Party just focused on that alone, that would ensure them victory across the board. But the mere fact that they won't do that speaks values in terms of they're beholden to the powerful, they're beholden to the rich, they're not beholden to uh, to the masses of people. And we have to fundamentally understand that is a core reality and stop deceiving themselves to believing that, in fact, we have, there's an alternative. When the reality is that it was never designed to be an alternative in terms of uh, the politics um, that govern the society. Thank you, Brother Hakeech. I listen to audience. You listen to Africa on the Move. Our theme today is a tribute to Kwame Ture, formerly known as Sophie Carmichael, uh, revolutionary forever. Uh, it was 22 years ago he made a transition in his beloved home, Africa, in Guinea-Conakry. We will be doing an upcoming tribute to him. And if you'd like to join in and share some thoughts, about the life and the work of Brother Kwame Ture. We will be doing this later on on the second half of this program. But right now, we're going to take a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what's going on in your world and the community. 
And you can join us and share with us what's going on in your world and community by calling in at 323-679-0841. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond love beyond your skin. To where you belong. Like a precocious child, 
Feeling the passion for life, erasing away all the strife. Telling our tales with verbal mail, putting honey on the blade, creating language to persuade. Share who we've always been. Always a blessing, never a sin. We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop and we don't stop. Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth. So we echo her call. And always walk tall. Because we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls. That everyone can wear. That everyone can share. We can't live in despair. So we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. We'd like to welcome everyone back to Africa on the Move. As we stated today, we'll be doing a tribute in honor of Brother Kwame Ture. But before we start our tribute for the next half hour, we will discuss the issue of what's going on in your world and the community. And you can join us by sharing with us your thoughts of what's going on in your world and the community by dialing 323-679-0841. Please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Once we have concluded the segment, signed at the top of this hour, 8 p.m., we will have a tribute to Brother Kwame Ture, and we'd like to hear your thoughts on the impact of his work, what he meant to you, what we have learned from him. Um, we would like for this to be a reflection of the people. It's the people who make history, so also it must be the people who must write it. So that is coming up shortly. But again, right now, we're going to discuss the theme, what's going on in your world and community. We'd like to hear that. Please free do dial in at 323-679-0841. So let's go to Brother Haki. We can come to you right now. And we're going to ask you, Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? <coughs> yeah, well, this Brother Africa, I tell you, that's so much manipulation in society. is, I tell you, it boggles the mind. But in any event, uh, recently the Pfizer CEO, Albert Berla, he sold 132,508 shares of Pfizer stock. This comes after media reported that the new COVID-19 vaccine will be 90% effective. Now, this begs the question, you know, why only 90%? Uh, you know, does this mean symptoms affiliated with COVID-19 will be reduced while the virus remains active in your body? It seems any vaccine short of 100% effectiveness should not be proclaimed e- effective. But in any event, the positive spin on this future vaccine resulted in share prices in excess of $41.93 per share. Buller made a cool $5.6 million on this, trans- on this transaction. Now, clearly, Brother Africa, if in fact that you have a product that's that's supposedly effective, then the only they, they, then in terms of share prices, then it only can increase. And you're talking about we're talking about forty one dollars and ninety four cents. But we're talking about if it's that effective, then we talk about share prices in excess of you know a hundred, two hundred dollars per share. So the mere fact that he traded uh, he traded you know uh, one hundred thirty two thousand five hundred eight shares of Pfizer stock. You know, before the vaccine actually hit the market, speaks values in terms of perhaps some type of collusion taking place with respect to this vaccine. Perhaps uh, Boiler understands, you know, that the vaccine is not what it's what it's um, alleged alleged to be. 
then in fact, maybe it, it may be that he realized that there are a lot of side effects affiliated with this particular vaccine, and he's going to get his money early before people recognize the reality in terms of what's going on. But he won't be the first CEO of a major corporation to engage in stop manipulation for the sole purpose of um, you know, uh, bringing in lots and lots of cash. And the problem is that when you talk about insider trading, that's very difficult in terms of being a charge insider trading. You know, establishing that insider trading is a very difficult thing to assess. You have your suspicions, but to prove it definitively, it's very difficult to achieve. So this guy Bulup is going to get away with get away with this with this with this con game, and he's going to make lots and lots of money, five point six million dollars. So clearly, you know, uh, it pays to be criminal minded in the society. So for those people who say crime don't pay, then obviously all you have to do is look at the uh, the economic system of America. If you don't crime doesn't pay, of course crime pays. Uh, if you look at economic uh, systems uh, throughout the corrupt wor- world, throughout the corrupt world, uh, crime pays. So clearly, America is no exception in terms of regard to you know criminality when it comes to you know stock manipulation, and those people who benefit you know from 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 dealing stock benefit immensely. And so clearly, he's no different. So it's just um, it's sad, you know, that he's playing this game. But now that he played this game, I think the thing that people should be on the lookout for when they bring this vaccine out by Pfizer uh, to you know, to be very, very careful in terms of, you know, injecting yourself with this vaccine, do your research, find as much as you possibly can before you start injecting yourself with this vaccine, because clearly something is very, very amiss in terms of uh, what's going on with this vaccine. Okay, Brother Hackey, we'll come back to you. That's what's going on in your world community. Next we go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Certainly, certainly we want to recognize the principal contradiction is the president is refusing to get up to his office uh, and uh, the transition from him to Biden is, is being uh, unsmoothly un- done. And that, you know, but Biden is hanging in there and, and we definitely know that transition will take place. I'm pretty sure of that if we have to escort him out of the office or whatever. But uh, uh, we, you know, the, the that's really the, the principal contradiction I feel like in the world today. Uh, it's this this waiting to to protest Biden and his administration. But not not quite ready to do so because he's not even in office yet. But we know we got our work cut out for us, and so that's that's where our eyes are focused. Thank you. Okay, thank you, brother Moses. We have a few a few participants on the board. We can go to our participant right now in the segment. What's going on now? We're in the community. We're going to bring in our brother Neil. We're going to bring in brother Neil. Brother Neil, welcome to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world in the community? Well, a, a, lot, a lot of things going on. Um, we got uh, we got some big elections going on. We have the election in uh, Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, you have a, 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 a president who was backed by the IMF and the World Bank uh, a few years ago uh, because they said there was irregularities on the part of a more progressive and more pan-African president. And they installed him 
and now he's running for an illegal third term, and he's locking up all the opposition um, uh, people. But uh, a lot of people, a lot of protesters are still going out opposing him. And uh, we see that uh, among those people opposing him includes the, the person who was uh, who headed up his his military the last time, the person who who um, uh, helped to raise up his his uh, forces that, that that helped him fight himself to power. So this is this is a situation that we uh, need to be aware of. It's going to have a big impact on the whole region. Because uh, people are leaving uh, Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire, however you want to call it, and they're going into Liberia, they're going into all of the surrounding uh, countries. So that's that's an, in, a, in addition to the you know in addition to the election here, that is also a very important election that uh, we have to take a uh, take a look at. And the other thing that I want to mention is in Ethiopia, where you're having a a struggle now between the central government. And the, uh, the Tigrayan region, and the Tigray, they they control a big force. And Tigray, you know, they used to run the country pretty, pretty much. They're six percent of the country, but they control a lot of the tanks and, and helicopters and things like that in the, in the military. So this is going to be a very interesting thing to watch because it's going to involve. It's involved Eritrea, which is to the north. It's involved in Sudan, where people are fleeing uh, and going into Sudan. And uh, it's uh, involved in several different ethnic groups in the country. And it's also involved in a lot of outside players who are trying to manipulate the outcome of this thing. So, so we got some very serious uh, things, you know, on on the continent uh, that that. That's going on, and I want to say just one last thing, if I can. Can I can I say one? I don't want to take up too much time. Yes, you got time, brothers. Take your time. This, um, this is important for our listening audience. One last to thing what's going I want to, want to mention is uh, this guy named Schwartzman, who is the uh, head of the Black Rock. And I started paying attention to Black Rock. Black Rock uh, when when um, Barack Obama was elected. Because BlackRock was the company that went down to Wall Street and got back for Obama to run. And BlackRock has become the largest in the world of uh, uh, what we call uh, uh, money organizers, you know, financial, uh, uh, private, uh, private equity funds. And I think uh, it controls somewhere around six, eight trillion dollars. Uh, maybe a little bit more. That's about half of the money that the United States makes in a year. So, the, so they have, they are, if they were a country, they will probably have the second largest or third largest economy in the entire world. And, uh, and Schwarzman met with uh, a group of 24, uh, some of the largest business people in the country, and he told them, well, we have to keep backing uh, uh, Trump. So, Within the within the upper echelons of the bourgeoisie, you know, you got uh, elements that support the uh, movement to consolidate uh, fascism, and you got uh, you know some other elements that might oppose it. But in the very highest echelon, you got some that 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 support it. So this is also going to be very kind of interesting uh, uh, to see to see how it goes, how all this stuff goes down. 
you know, Brother Neil, before we go, come to Brother Mayo, um, I would like to ask you a general question, if you can give me your your best estimates on, on, on getting us a kind of analysis of when we look at what's going on on Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast and on the eastern part of Africa where you're dealing with Somalia, Ethiopia in general, how does the U.S. foreign policy play a role in these issues of dynamics from your perspective? Well, well um, from my perspective, from my perspective it's, it's, it's clear that, clear that the U.S. is, the US is, is, is directly involved directly in some involved of these areas, areas, and in some of these areas, the United States is subcontracting stuff out stuff to out other to people other to, handle. to handle. So, so on, the East Coast, on the East Coast, around the Horn, around the Horn let's say, let's say, we have to look at to look some of these other actors to see how they're working because, you know, they're working, and they're going to be the front line actors, but they're also going to be tied uh, to, to, the, to the U.S. itself. So, um, in, 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 the, in the same way that we say that in, uh, in the era of neo-colonialism, you have these countries that are that that are, are, are really um, countries in name only, but it, but they don't control that foreign policy. You also have you have sub imperialist powers. You have you have a, like a, a farm team, a minor league. And uh, so you have the uh, so you have United, the, uh, Arab, United Emirates. Arab Emirates, they're involved they're in that region, the, the uh, Saudis are involved in that region, and of course the uh, Israelis are playing a bigger and bigger role in that region, especially since they got recognized by the, uh, by the Sudanese, by the Sudanese government, and now by the Malawans, which are further down, but in that region, so we're going to see some squeezing on that region. About in About 1970, early 70, 70, 70, 73, this guy wrote a book, and he, he looked at Africa, he put a map, and he said, uh, a strategy, imperialist strategy for the continent was to first come and control, and, and he was talking about from the 70s onward, he said it's first to come to control the different coasts, the east coast, the west coast, and then, then they're going to stab the heart. Uh, and that's the Congo and Central Africa and so forth. And from that point on, you're going to see breaking out of different pieces. Uh, so we see the, so we see the North Africans trying to they're trying to carve that out and make that a part of the European uh, uh, economic and political uh, structure. And uh, in West Africa, the same thing with the French and the United States and, and under under Bill Clinton. Um, you know, a lot of people you know, think that, people uh, think uh, that, uh, that, that George Bush was the first Bush one to come up with the, uh, 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 the, uh, the uh, AFRICOM, but before George Bush came with the AFRICOM, Bill Clinton came up with something called the African Rapid Response thing, which grew into AFRICOM, and Bill Clinton's policy was to have a dual policy where the United States would kind of be, kind of oversee the whole thing, but the French would, would be kind of on the ground. So the French are very active there, and the French of and, and, and other European countries are coming into the into what used to be called quote unquote French West Africa. So that's getting carved out, and and um, and down in Zimbabwe, you know, we see the, the current uh, military government wanting to give land back and two billion, two or three billion, what three and a half billion or whatever to. Uh, 
white farmers who stole this land years ago. So that's getting called back out. So so we see this regionalist approach and that anti-socialist approach that was taken in defiance of what Nkrumah had called for and Texas Ray and other people had called for a unified socialist Africa. Uh, the, the path the that we path took, that is, we is, took is, is destroying us, destroying us. And, and, um, and at the same and time as the war, time world goes to war on Africa, it has to go to war on Africans in the United States, in Brazil, in Colombia, and wherever. So it's part of an overall world dynamic to call it one world system. And uh, it's it, and where it, it vibrates in one place, like on a on a string on a guitar. It vibrates in one place, and that vibration it might be very strong in the center, but it vibrates itself all up and down that string. So, uh, so we in we in for a tough ride, but this is the one. This is the this is the period where we can win because this is a showdown. That uh, has uh, to come. It's just, come. Like, just like World War like One was a, that kind of a showdown. So this showdown. is a similar kind of showdown. So uh, it depends if we do what we have to do. Brother Neil, we'll come back to you. You made an interesting point or statement where you stated that when the world go to war, when the world going to war in Africa. They also will go war go into war at Africans who live in the states. I think our people need to understand that dynamic. But we'll get back with that. Let's bring in that brother Mill. Brother Mill, welcome to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world and the community, brother Mill? Well, hey, hey, some some of the same some things same that been things been discussed. Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm uh, glad to be here. Want to uh, mention, mention something that there's uh, looking at. Uh, Brother Neil just mentioned about East Africa. We need to be aware of a, a looming uh, problem with uh, Ethiopia's intention of uh, building a new dam on the Nile. And the uh, the uh, trouble that's brewing with, with that uh, for uh, Egypt and uh, the opportunity for a lot of mischief to be developed around that uh, possible conflict. And those elements that are always at play will try to make the worst of that for the African people, the Ethiopians and Egyptians and others in the, in the region, in Sudanese and others, over this uh, control of water, which is increasingly, you know, more crucial um, than ever with the uh, the, uh, the use of the uh, waters of the Nile. So that's something we uh, we can uh, put on our, our list as something to give attention to and and action around. Uh, up So otherwise, I have uh, been uh, attending today, for example, with uh, people online in a webinar on uh, normalization of uh, relationship with Cuba. And it was a, a three-day uh, event 
with uh, two days of discussions by uh, uh, persons uh, from all over, all over, all over the world, and uh, particularly Western Hemisphere, Canada, and uh, Latin America, uh, and with some very enlightening presentations. Uh, information about uh, principally um, uh, removing the blockade and uh, steps to uh, to do that, actions to uh, attack the, uh, the block or the so-called embargo that's lasted for 60 years. And uh, in in doing that, the presenters uh, provided a lot of uh, details, statistics, and uh, historical accounts of uh, what uh, what has happened in Cuba and uh, and elsewhere as a result of this uh, embargo and uh, and related uh, activities. And of course, there was uh, concern with the pandemic and, and Cuba's response to it and the refusal of U.S. authorities to acknowledge uh, any of that or to allow any kind of um, solidarity uh, to, uh, to take effect here in the United States. And some actions have been, you know, discussed about that. There are some upcoming, uh, upcoming things, uh, including the uh, – inauguration of the U.S. president, actions around that coming up, and in May, the United Nations spoke on, on the embargo. So there's a large network of uh, organizations around the U.S. And, and Canada, Mexico, Puerto Rico, uh, who are uh, on the case to, uh, to make some, some noise and, and to attempt to educate the uh, populace to a greater degree than has ever been done. Um, people like uh, Hands Off of uh, Cuba, uh, IFCO, and the, uh, the Pastors for Peace, and uh, many other groups who have been active for a long time in various things uh, with Cuba and uh, about, uh, about Cuba uh, are on this uh, campaign. It's very inspiring, very encouraging. Uh, uh, two day, two days of talks, uh, three sessions, uh, two on Saturday and uh, one uh, today. And so uh, the uh, the campaign uh, recognized the the overall importance of it, the entire Latin America situation and U.S. imperialism in that regard and uh, the uh, specific uh, uh, situation in Venezuela uh, and, and Nicaragua. And uh, uh, it was a uh, very, very well done uh, web webinar uh, series. And uh, I, was, uh, I came away uh, a bit uh, encouraged by the, uh, by the event and the, and, the, and the people who were, who were involved in it. And uh, uh, that's uh, just before uh, signing on with you. Pretty much, uh, maybe an hour or so ago, uh, tuning off from that. And, uh, yeah, brother, here, here. I've, I've been receiving some good points as well, as released to the 
events that took place this weekend around Cuba. Uh, people have said been very enlightening and um, um, educational in terms of getting a better understanding of this whole mm-hmm. dynamic and that struggle that's taking place in the Caribbean and Central and South America. Yeah, they've been giving me some, also some good reports based upon what mm-hmm. you have stated. Mm-hmm. Well, all the issues, you're listening to Africa on the Move. We're in the segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. If you have anything you'd like to share with us concerning what's going on in your world and the community, feel free to dial 323-679-0841. Going back to you, Brother Hackey, and to my participants, if you have anything that is stated that you would like to add to or have a question about, feel free to raise it. As this whole program is set up to become to be informed and to educate our people on the various issues and concerns that are affecting our communities throughout Africa and diaspora. So, Brother Hackey, you raised a really interesting point in your um, recent presentation around this whole question dealing with this pandemic and dealing with this um, trying to come up with some kind of um, cure for this virus and how the owners sold off large sums of his stock. Um, in reference to that, I would like to have your perspective and other participants' perspective on the issue of what we normally talk about doing research to come up with some kind of um, some kind of um, antidote to a virus or something. It's my understanding that it takes many years to come up with any kind of uh, um, solution to any kind of viruses that is new. You just can't make things in a short period of time. Just understand the scientific process and the type of experiments that you have to do. And so to talk about coming up with something for less than one or two years, how can that be? Is this just another game they are playing on the people? What is your take on this question of um, how quickly one is talking about coming up with a virus when normally the normal process, it takes many years before you even start talking about injecting human beings? Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you know, brother Africa. You know, it's all about profitability, and that's that's the bottom line. You're right. Uh, one of the things when you look in terms of uh, the vaccines for uh, flu, those vaccines are only 50 percent efficacy uh, effective. So clearly, you know, uh, this in terms of creating this vaccine for something as complex as so-called COVID-19 virus, and, and in less than two years, it's, it's, it's suspect. But again, again, it's all about the money. It's all about profitability. And this explains why, perhaps explains why the uh, CEO of Pfizer, uh, Albert Berla, perhaps explains why he, he, he caught, you know, he got cashes in chips early, because he understands it's all part of a scam, and he wants to make sure he get paid up front. So clearly, you know, that's, you know that, that is a problem in terms of this, this mindset in terms of all about probability, but it makes sense. When you talk about the overall economic decline of the system, it makes sense that those positions are problem, specifically those who deal in stock, will get paid any way, any way they can. And so one of the ways they do that is often by stock manipulation or inside information. But let me just go back to something that Brother Mills said that I think is important uh, in terms of um, um, Black, um, BlackRock. One of the things that recently BlackRock engaged in is kind of um, – is it's not really stock manipulation per se, but certainly it's manipulation in terms of business ethics. And one of the things they did was that they had some subsidiaries, individuals that they that um, they have some controlling interest in their businesses, 
they in turn had those businesses to actually go to the government and say, listen, we need funds to turn turn tools of hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, those 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 amounts was granted by the government. The government actually gave them that those money. Black BlackRock in turn took those revenues that they got from the government and paid their their, their officials higher salaries. So even though it's unethical, it's certain in the context of capitalism, it's certain legal. And so BlackRock sort of epitomizes the kind of coercion, the kind of corruption, the kind of criminality that is so commonplace in terms of capitalism. And that's the thing we've got to be concerned about. And then in terms of something that Brother Mel said in terms of Ethiopia, so one of the things we got to think about in terms of Ethiopia is that when we talk about this water crisis that's impacting Ethiopia, uh, one of the things is that this, the problem goes back to the 1929-1959 treaty that was made between Egypt and Western now, this treaty, in fact, determined, you know, the water uses of the Nile. In fact, it stipulated that the Egyptians would receive 60% of all the waters of the Nile, have access to 60% of all the waters in the Nile, while Sudan would have only 13% on a yearly basis. Each Ethiopia wasn't even included. But fortunately, under the Vienna Convention Article 16, it says that all colonial treaties are not enforceable. So states that are, in fact, independent have the right to make their own law. And so based upon that basis, Ethiopia was true to proceed, free to proceed. Uh, so it's good that they did that. Uh, I think one of the things that, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, I got to say this about um, the present leadership in Ethiopia, and this is important that we understand this. You know, um, during the time that he came into power, we're talking about Abe, um, Abe uh, Ahmed, by the time that he came into power, the, the chief uh, architect of the Nile Valley Dam was Bakeli. Bakeli was assassinated under dubious circumstances. And one of the things that's very interesting is that uh, Ahmed was supposed to be an interim president. The idea was that he would only serve a, min- a minimum of time in terms of bringing about, you know, transition, you know, to a, to a more uh, democratic system in Ethiopia. He didn't. He didn't step down. What he did, he continued to, to, to stay in power. In fact, he formed a relationship with most corrupt individuals on the continent uh, out of Eritrea. And those two are, those two are conniving, uh, uh, and people have speculated that the fact that one of the things that they're doing is that they're something to, 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 to create some plan in terms to attack the Tigray, uh, the liberation movement, you know, in, the, in that part of Ethiopia. Uh, so clearly, you know, uh, this question in terms of water uh, is, is, is a question of colonialism. And uh, the fact that Egypt is willing to actually engage in terms of this kind of trans, this kind of discussion, in terms of its rights, speaks to the kind of prevalence or the kind of power that the U.S. wields in terms of uh, being in a position to actually force Egypt to uh, go along with whatever policy is mandate uh, that is in any Western interest. So clearly, uh, in terms of legally, uh, Egypt has no standing in terms of trying to uh, enforce a, 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 doc, a document that's been discredited for a long, long time. But it doesn't stop them simply because they see it as they see it as their interest, not necessarily their interest, but they see it as a, a, a U.S. interest. And because U.S. funds Egypt to, to, to a great extent, uh, one of the things they don't want to do is to lose, lose those investments. So I think clearly they have a strong incentive in terms of playing ball with the U.S. to create a justification for potentially, potentially going to war with, 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 with Ethiopia over war. And here's the thing, and I'm close with this. In terms of the water, in terms of water, 85, they, the, the scientists say 85% of the water that goes into the Nile is, comes from the, from, from the hills and flows down into the Nile. 85% of that water comes from Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is saying that, listen, what we want to do, we have, you know, we have a, uh, we have a, a process in place. The Nile Basin Corporate Agreement 
between eleven other different states and said we're going to share the water equally, and based upon your and based upon each, your your and based upon uh, uh, um, um, drought. That we're going to we're going to determine how much how much more more we have to release in terms of facilitation for that drought, irrespective of what country you got you go, you're, you're from. So that's a very very that's, I mean people that's nothing more easy to do in terms of trying to ensure that the the access to water is is, is provided. They're doing everything humanly possible in terms of doing that. Egypt is not concerned about that because Egypt has more colonial relationship with the U.S. because of that colonial relationship, it's willing to please its, its financial backers, which is the United States. So clearly. You know, this question in terms of water is, is, is somewhat of a scapegoat, and Egypt is using it for justification, ultimately, if not to destroy the Nile River Dam, but to at least in, to, to evade uh, Ethiopia militarily for the sole purpose of destabilization. So we got to be very clear on what's going on in Ethiopia. Okay, panelists, what we could have to do right now, we could have to take a station break, and when we come back, we could start the second half of this program as we can give it to. Our brother Kwame Toure, we're going to give or, or, or we're going to articulate um, a platform where people can give their respect to our brother Kwame Toure and talk about the nature of his work, its impact on our people. And we're calling this a tribute to Kwame Toure, revolutionary forever. We're going to have a discussion when we come back on brother Kwame Toure with the mentor. You know, this is his 22nd um Years since he has made a transition on November the 15th, 1998, in his beloved country, Kenny Connor Creek in Africa. So we're going to do that. We'd like to hear your perspective on this legacy of Brother Kwame Ture when we come back. And we'll start off with our Brother Bamboshi Shungo, who's an organizer for the All-African People, Revolution Party GC. They did a beautiful program yesterday, uh, commemoration and honoring the revolutionary life of Brother Kwame Ture. We're going to get a report up there, a report on the program, an update, and we will have a line open for the masses of the people to call in to pay their respect and homage to our brother Kwame Ture. So we're going to pause for this call. When we come back, we'll begin this discussion. A tribute to Kwame Ture, revolutionary forever. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, for soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful, 
line across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth, Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves, Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. We will now start our segment, a tribute to Kwame Ture, revolutionary forever. You know, 22 years ago, our brother made a transition in beloved home Africa in Concrete, Guinea, on November the 5th, 1998. When we talk about Brother Kwame Ture, formerly known as Tokyo Michael, 
We are talking about a brother who dedicated his whole life to the upliftment and the liberation of Africa and African people, as well as all of humanity. So it would be fitting for us to pay homage to our brother who have gave so much, who has taught us so much. And what we want to do is to go to the people today, since the people are the history makers, and get their perspective on the impact of his work, his life, what it meant to them, and to share anything significant that they would like to share with the listening world as it relates to our brother Kwame Ture. So we'll begin that tribute first by bringing in our brother Bamboshi Shango, who is an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC. He's also organized a national network on Cuba and many other organizations. And the APIPGC did a tribute a commemoration to Kwame Ture yesterday, November the 14th. He's going to give us a, a update summary on that particular um, commemoration, and he's going to give us his perspective of having the opportunity to work with this brother for many years. Right now, we'd like to welcome Brother Bamboshi to the program. Welcome, Brother Bamboshi, and we'd like to give you a few minutes to give us an update on the reported the program yesterday and to share something with Alison audience on your experiences in terms of working with Brother Kwame and what he meant to you and the people. Brother Bamboshi. Thank you very much, you Brother, very Africa. Much Brother Africa. Uh, uh, yesterday's yesterday program was, program was a, a learning process, learning for, process many for many of us. Many of us. It was, it was a qualitatively, a qualitatively excellent, excellent program, program. And, and in saying that, in saying I must that, give I you must some, give examples. some examples. We had, we had listed, listed some of Kwame's closest Kwame's political, allies. political allies, the, the Pan-African Pan Congress, Congress of Ozania, the... Uh, the uh, Sister Party of the AAPRP in Guinea, the Party Revolutionary Democratic Africa in Guinea, and we had also some of the younger groups of youth from the continent, the Oshajifo Youth Movement, and so on. Now, so we, on. Now were, we unable were unable because of technical, technical difficulties, difficulties to get through, to get through some, of these groups. some of these groups, but, but the, program the program came out came excellently, out and we're and about, we're to, about put it to put it up on up both on the party's the website, website and, and have the have link to the it put out in general. In general. And the problem I think problem we're having think right we're now having is, right that is that the program the being program three and a half hours, half long, hours long, the file is a little too large, too large to send it out, send it as, out as email, so, so we're working, we're working on how, working to, how to resolve that, resolve problem, that problem and get it and out, get and, out up. and up. Uh, uh, we must say that we, we, had, say also we had also the victory for the Guyanese, an organization from Guyana. from Guyana. 
in which our brother gave us a clear outline of the current situation of the struggle in Guyana and South America. Many of you know Guyana is right next to Venezuela. It's between Venezuela and Colombia. So it's in the hot region, politically hot also right now. So he gave us an update on the struggle that they're waging against uh, neoliberal political officials in Guyana and what they perceive as what will necessary what is necessary to happen in the near future. Uh, our brothers from the our brothers who work in solidarity with the people of the Congo, friends of the Congo, gave an excellent update on the role of Lumumba and how he came to be influenced by Kwame Nkrumah and Secretary at the uh, 1958 All-African Conference in Ghana, and how this conference radicalized him, and he went back into the Congo, a changed person, a revolutionary, and because of that, the Belgians, the French, the and, the US and the U.S. conspired, conspired to have him killed, have and, they killed did. and they did. We, we had, a had a number of other groups, other and, group, again, and again, it will be good to look good at this. Look at we this. had, we for, had example, for example, a small... A small uh, uh, Intervention, intervention from, from one of the one of sons the of Kwame Ture, Ture who, who is in, who Guinea, is in Guinea, who, who spoke, spoke about, about the, the relationship, relationship of his father, of his and, father how and how he perceived perceive the, the work that his father that has, his done, father in has world, done in the world and the necessity, and the necessity to, continue to continue it. Now, now, Many of you are of aware, you of, are Kwame aware of Kwame Ture. You are aware of him in his struggles in the civil rights movements in the 60s. His proclamation of the necessity for black folks to have black power. But while he spent... <coughs> An average, an average of, of about seven about years, seven years working, working inside of the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, committee waging demonstrations, waging protests, and organizing, organizing in, the South, in the South in the 60s. In the 60s. He spent he approximately, approximately 30, years 30 years organizing, organizing for the total liberation and unification of Africa under an all-African socialist government. He organized with the clear analysis and understanding that as a people we must have a common ideology. 
And that ideology ideology must be rooted in our history, history. and it must be endogenous. endogenous. By that we mean mean it must come from us. It cannot be be given to us by somebody else, else. imposed by by some other group. It must must emanate from us, so it must be endogenous. endogenous. So Kwame, Kwame, understanding this clearly, Set it out in 1968 to meet Brother Kwame Nkrumah. And it's very strange because Kwame's meeting with Nkrumah happened through a series of historical events. One, he went to to the the Anti-Imperialist Conference conference in Havana, Cuba. Cuba. And he witnessed the formation of the the Organization of African, Asian, Asian and Latin American countries. countries. From this this meeting, he had a meeting meeting with with President President Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam. He left Cuba on the way to Vietnam. However, into that flight, the Cubans ordered the plane to return to Cuba. They took him off the plane and put him on a plane to Russia because their intelligence had gotten word that there was going to be an assassination attempt on Kwame in Europe, in Europe, if he had if stayed, he had on, stayed the on the flight path that he was on. He was on. So he so went through Russia, Russia to Vietnam. To Vietnam. In Vietnam, in he Vietnam, met Cho Enh Lai, he met Ho Chi Minh. He met a number of key important liberation movement figures who were fighting for the Vietnamese. And he met somebody who as he traveled from Vietnam Vietnam to China, China, told him that it was a necessity necessity for him to come to Ghana and meet meet Kwame Nkrumah. Nkrumah. That person was was Shirley Graham Du Bois, Bois. the wife wife of W.E.B. Du Bois. She she actually facilitated not only the meeting between between Kwame Kwame Ture and Kwame Nkrumah, but she also also introduced Kwame Kwame to his first wife, wife, Miriam Makeba, who we all know as Mother Africa. Africa. Uh, Uh, And the rest was history. history. So So after that meeting and after discussions, with Kwame Nkrumah, who asked Kwame Ture to, to return to Guinea, where Guinea Kwame was, Kwame Nkrumah was vice president at that time, co-president. Kwame Nkrumah asked Kwame Ture to return to Guinea to serve as a secretary. Which he did which he until, did until Kwame, Kwame Nkrumah's death, death in, in 
during this time, Kwame had the the great ability and the necessary closeness with Vancouver to study the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. And he asked Nkuma to allow him to develop the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, which was called for in this Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, inside the United States. Now, before this, it was basically, this party was basically being built in Africa. So... In 1972, 1972, the AAPRP emerged at a press conference at Howard University and announced itself publicly for the first time inside the United States. And it immediately developed just all over the place like a pandemic. Since then, many of you may know that countries that were still held as colonies in Africa were liberated, including the basically last colony, South Africa, in the 1990s, 1992. Kwame led the struggle inside the United States and this hemisphere to develop develop the AAPRP. AAPRP. That struggle continues today, and it is is the legacy and the heritage heritage of the the AAPRPGC that is taking this struggle struggle to the masses of our people. The program for Kwame Ture yesterday was a small continuation of this struggle to organize our people all over the world for the total liberation and unification of Africa, our African continent, and to allow the resources of Africa to once and for all go to benefit in the African masses no matter where they are in the world. I think I will stop here and see what Brother Africa may have for us. What we're going to do right now, Balboshi, we're going to allow individuals who have been waiting patiently to make that contribution on how they will best remember the legacy and the life of Brother Kwame Ture. And we ask each individual to be mindful of the time because we ask if you can make the presentation, keep it within the time period of two to three minutes, we will greatly appreciate it. So we can go to our brother, Mikasa, who can briefly introduce himself, and he will make his statement in terms of how he will best remember the life and work of Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Mikasa, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Well, thank you, African, and I don't have much to say because I agree with everything Babosha said, and even more, uh, Babosha is very clear and laid it out very good. But I spent about 60 years with Kwame Ture, and we fought many battles, 
We had to fight people, let them know that they were slaves, let people know that black was beautiful. We have to let people know that they were African, and that was a major task to go around the world and teach people they were African, and teach people that Africa was very positive, and Africa was very beautiful. Africa had great civilization, and many, many African cultures, many, many African languages, many, many African deals, and that Africa was being attacked by outside forces. The Arabs attacked Africa. The Europeans, France, Britain, Germany, attacked Africa, and they used a machine called imperialism, and they have raped Africa for the last 500 years and took the Africans and scattered them all over the world. And if Kwame Ture was living today, he would tell all the Africans to come together and rise up and fight. Let's bring a disorder into Africa. Let's rise up against the neo-colonial government and let's destroy them. Let's break the relationship with Europe. Break the rape relationship, the robber relationship, the murder relationship, the dropping bombs on Africa relationship. Let's sell that relationship and come together with a united Africa. It's time for us to fight. It's time for us to organize. And it's time to use socialism as our instrument. And we must join in with Castro, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Libya, Congo, and, and uh, how you say, Mali and all the Africans in the world that's fighting against imperialism, but our fight is for socialism, scientific socialism, and our fight is for Africa. We can never be free until Africa is free. And Idi Amin said to me once, when we, me and Kwame was in Uganda, come to Africa, get your politics, and then go abroad and teach it to the masses and the people. And that's what we've been trying to do. Long live Kwame Ture, long live APIP, long live Fidel Castro, long live all Kwame Kuma, Sekou Ture, Lumumba, uh, uh, Mr. Du Bois and Fannie Lou and all the freedom fighters that exist in the world today, and long live all the fighters who are up in arms right now fighting and continue to fight, and we will defeat imperialism. Thank you, Africans. Thank you, Brother Mikasa. Next, we are going to Brother Tom Whitney. We'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Tom. Uh, hi. Uh, <coughs> I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. We can hear you loud and clear. Oh, good. I'm glad to be with you. I'm speaking from the state of Maine in the United States, and I'm very pleased to be able to say something about Kwame Ture. I did not know Kwame Ture, although I will... I did uh, meet him once on a flight to Cuba, and he sat in this seat in front of me beside a friend of mine. And he, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, talked and told the whole trip. It lasted about an hour or two from the Bahamas, and uh, and I overheard and listened to Kwame Ture as he explained who he was and what he was doing to my friend. I've been active in the Cuba Solidarity Movement, and I work with the Communist Party USA. 
I know Kwame Touré as an anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, and an internationalist. He, uh, we need people, heroes like Kwame Touré today as teachers and agitators. I have the assumption that who he was and what he did stemmed entirely from his understanding that racist oppression in its various forms had everything to do with capitalism. We in the world today sorely lack a spokesperson and a leader of the statue of Kwame So that's what I have to say, and I'm very pleased to be able to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. And we'd like to thank you, Brother Tom, for your contribution to today's program. We'll put you on hold, and next we'll go to Brother Lewis Wolf. Please introduce yourself and the work that you do and make your statement. Welcome, Brother Lou, to Africa. Thank you, Brother Lee. Thank you for inviting me, and I feel privileged to be on a very distinguished uh, group of uh, speakers tonight. Um, I did not know uh, Stokely Carmichael nor Kwame Ture. Uh, I've read a lot about him, and I've, I've learned a lot about him from my uh, my fellow brother with, with you, Lee, uh, Bob Brown. And um, Kwame Ture was a prominent organizer in the civil rights movement in the U.S., and the Pan-African movement globally. He was born in 1941 in Trinidad. He grew up in the United States from the age of 11, became an activist while attending the Bronx High School of Science. He was a charismatic leader in the development of the Black Power Movement, first as a leader of the Student Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. Then he was the honorary coordinating committee member of the honorary prime minister, I'm sorry, of the Black Panther Party. And last, he was the leader of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. Um, I've seen some speeches by him, and one of them, he's uh, speaking at Colorado State University, and he said, uh, he started saying to a very crowded auditorium of all black people, and he was saying, it's Quote, stop running away from being black. And he said, I, 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 he, he sort of confessed to growing up watching Tarzan movies, believe it or not. And he, and he said, at the time, he was watching these films and he was saying out loud, we must form a base to fight racism because he saw that Tarzan was about killing black people. And that's, where, and that's part of his for, the formation of his anti-racism uh, work uh, in his life. Then he, he mounted a chant, which everybody took up in the auditorium, and, he, and this was during the, the anti-war movement against the Vietnam War, and he said, hell no, we won't go, hell no, we won't go, hell no, we won't go. And the whole auditorium was filled with everybody saying that. And then he said, if not now, when? If not you, who? So he he learned early on 
that we can't expect for liberation to come from the top down. It's got to come from the bottom up. And he entered the, the uh, he was actually imprisoned for, I think, several years for his, in Greenwood, Mississippi prison. And as he emerged from the Greenwood, Mississippi prison, his first words were black power. He also, as uh, Tom Whitney has uh, uh, said, he was an internationalist. He, he once spoke about Haiti, and he talked about Haiti being the only country that did not allow slavery on its on its the only country in Africa that would not allow slavery on its soil. So I, I, I would close by saying, quoting uh, very interestingly, uh, Julian Bond, the late Julian Bond, who said. Kwame, quote, Kwame, Kwame Ture ought to be remembered for having spent almost every moment of his adult life trying to advance the cause of black liberation, unquote. I think that sums him up. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brother Lou. And next we will go to Robin Hunter. We will bring in Brother Hunter. Briefly introduce yourself and make your statement as we continue to give this tribute and honor Brother Kwame Ture. Brother Hunter, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, Brother Lee, and to all of the distinguished guests, and I appreciate all that I have heard. And I want to thank you, Lee, for the opportunity to say something about a great brother, Kwame Ture, and what he has meant to each of us. I'm, I'm a minister here. My name is Rodney Hunter. I'm a minister here in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm just thankful for people like Kwame Ture, a person who first came speaking truth. And we know it's truth because truth is eternal. And he came with revelation. He came to open the minds of blacks who had been shackled and still mentally and intellectually imprisoned by, by slavery and segregation and colonialism. And when he came proclaiming boldly black power, helping us to know that we will set our own agenda and not let our agenda be run by others who wanted to keep us in bondage. So I appreciate him for his courage and his, his innovation and then to, to bring unification to us and to connect us, not just to think of ourselves as black Americans, but to know that we are united with the continent, with our brothers and sisters in Africa and through our the world. And here again, that's, that's revolutionary, and it's also creative, a creative way of helping us to see that we are not just some small fragmented group of people, but we are great people. And if we can start to think about our greatness and who we are and appreciate who we are, then we can do great things. So I just thank God for him, how he dedicated his life. He sacrificed. He didn't try to achieve a fortune. This is why I appreciate him so much. So many people try to use their name and fame for fortune, and so many can get exploited by corporations and start to turn against the the good that we need for our people, but he never did that. Throughout his entire life, he never lost the vision of speaking truth to power and for helping us to liberate, stay, stay focused 
And also, he, I, I remember when he came to New York when he was sick and he talked about our need to organize and be an organized people. And so many times, he, as he was sharing, we, we, we react to crises, but we need to be organized and we need to be prepared for things that are coming, not just to react, but be prepared and set the agenda to be ready for revolution. We be ready to make the changes that are necessary. The other thing I think that was so great about him is the fact that I and I think during one of his last speeches, I mean, he, he looked back over his life and he was able to say some of the mistakes perhaps that he had made, but I just saw also a humility in him. And so many times leaders, when they become uh, powerful in one sense, they sometimes can lose that humility and touch with just the common brothers and sisters everywhere. He never lost that. And I can appreciate him, and I thank God for him, because he came speaking truth. He had a message. He stayed with that message. And we are all the better for it. And if we can just continue to work from that message and vision, then we too will, I think, keep his memory and his work alive. So thank you so much for letting me share that. A great brother, Kwame Toure. God bless him. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, I appreciate it. And to everyone. Thank you, Brother Hunter. Next, we will go to uh, Sister Tage. Sister Tage, introduce yourself and make your statement. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Greetings. Greetings. Uh, thank you so much, uh, thank you so much. Um, um, for all, of for all of your work, Brother your Africa, work, as well. Africa, as well. And, and um, um, for the opportunity, for the opportunity to, to honor. Um, Kwame Ture today. today. And so, so my name is Sister Dage, and I'm a a high school educator educator for mathematics and art. Um, I'm a former educator from Los Angeles and also producer with Freedom Now. And my honor goes from the lessons of Kwame Ture that I had initially learned from our ancestor Didan, Didan Kamati, and the principles of Pan-Africanism that I had learned from Didan about Kwame Ture, from Kwame Ture as well, made its way to our students in the classroom. Whether it was through field trips of taking the students to the radio station and Didon would chaperone and and talk with the students. Um, Didon really modeled these principles um, and elicited the spirit of Kwame Ture. And there was nothing and never a moment that the students backed down in their interest into from hearing these truths and they wanted to to learn more because um, you know students high school students they love truth. The youth, the they youth, love the truth, they love the right? Truth, they love organization. Right? They love sense-making. Sense it's it's part of, part of um, their aha moments their aha and, and um, emotional security emotional and readiness and, 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 you know, self-identification you know, self-identification, um, spiritually um, in their beliefs, too, beliefs too, you know, of injustices that they see and when they hear rationale and pathways of, you know, Addressing, addressing issues, issues when you're, diame- when you're diametrically, diametrically opposed, opposed. Um, um, 
and kind of had to navigate through this reality. You know, the the youth, they knew that they're also needing their forms of liberation. And so, you know, the message, the spirit, the voice of Kwame Ture goes so far, you know, in what the youth are asking for. And so, you know, he provided, you know, this golden key, if you will. So students, so students and the future generations, future generations are, you know, are unlocking, you know, are unlocking what has been, what has um, been um, holding them. Holding and so they, they get so this they initiation get into their own passive um, liberation, um, liberation so they can also collectively also organize and have these conversations, you know, in different organizations that they're part of, they're part of um, whether it's through, um, their, whether it's through their, their groups in the classroom during their assignments, but... But it starts to, start you know, to, they start to really start to move along on the page that they're on. They have understanding that their elders have talked about this, that, you know, that this is a reality and that they can feel their sense and their role in it. So we give so much tribute and so much honor. And so, you know, to speak on behalf of so many of the students as well, and myself as a student of his um Indeed, Anz, it's it's an honor, it's an honor um, you know, to to say thank you as well. Thank you as well. And Sister Tej, we thank you for your contribution. And right now, we can go to our brother Abami Azikwe. Welcome to Africa on the Move. Introduce yourself and make your statement. Well, thank you so well, much. You, uh, so you had much. called earlier today uh, about this uh, uh, about program, program and. and I, um, I um, was, uh, was uh, first became first familiar became with, uh, with uh, Kwame Touré when he was uh, Stokely Carmichael. I was born in the uh, southern, southern United, United States, States, and my parents and were involved parents in the civil rights movement in, rights movement in southwest in Tennessee, 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 and which is on the border with Mississippi. Border with Mississippi. And uh, there and, was, uh, um, was, of uh, course, uh, a lot of uh, activity on the part of students, SNCC workers. And, uh, and stick uh, affiliated, stick uh, affiliated uh, programs uh, in, that uh, in that region. And in 1966, when he was elected as chairperson of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and was instrumental in continuing the march against fear, which was started by James Meredith, who was a graduate of Ole Miss. He had integrated Ole Miss in 1962 amid a white racist riot where two people were killed. But in 66, uh, the movement uh, had moved uh, towards uh, black power, and uh, he became a national and international figure uh, when uh, Willie Ricks, uh, Mukasa Gata, and um, the later uh, Kwame Ture uh, had raised the black power slogan uh, during that uh, period. Uh, I live in Detroit, and uh, uh, Kwame visited Detroit on many, many occasions. Um, I have uh, recordings of him speaking uh, in 1966 at Cobo Hall, uh, Michigan State University in 1967, and uh, I was able to uh, meet him in uh, 1980, invited him to Wayne State University where I was working at the time, and um, had the privilege of organizing, well, picking him up at the airport, organizing a press conference. Uh, hosting uh, um, a huge uh, lecture that he delivered uh, at the university and also at uh, University of Michigan that same weekend in April of uh, 1980. 
and uh, met him and worked with him on many times, many occasions. Since then, I often think, what would he say today amid the global crisis of capitalism and imperialism, where the pandemic is wreaking havoc in the number one imperialist country in the world? And, uh, and uh, what he would be saying, and I'm sure he would be saying that we need to uh, organize, we need to conduct political education, uh, we need to be vigilant uh, to take advantage of this moment, uh, to move towards uh, socialism, and I think that would be his uh, message. Uh, he is, of course, his voice is clearly missed uh, during this period. Uh, so much ideological confusion that exists. Uh, among, uh, African, among people African people and other oppressed people and working class working people, class and, uh, and uh, he was always he was pushing, always pushing uh, the positive, positive uh, the primacy uh, of Africa, Africa uh, the need for uh, revolutionary pan-Africanism, and also the whole role of the World Socialist Movement in improving the conditions of humanity overall. So I just want to express my pleasure in being invited to participate in this broadcast. Thank you for the invitation. And we thank you, Brother Zikri, for your contribution to this program as well. Next, we'll go to Sister Tiambi. Introduce yourself and welcome to Africa on the Moon. Good evening, everybody. I'm so happy to be asked to contribute to this program. My name is Tiambe Carolyn Taylor, and I worked with uh, Brother Kwame uh, in the early 80s. I worked with the program committee, typing, editing huge volumes of documents, and that has been a very important part of my life and has really influenced everything that I have done because he was such a compelling, passionate, fiery speaker that when I heard him speak on the African Liberation Days that I helped to organize, um, everything that that I knew about history and current events and even what I know about current events and what's going on now, he made everything so clear because his vision was uh, a vision high above. He was sitting from a high vantage point looking and able to teach us and to let us know what was going on and to help us to understand our role in society. Not only was he a powerful man in history uh, who made a tremendous impact, but Personally, he was a gentleman, he was a scholar, he was a person who believed in justice. Uh, he was just an honorable human being that I will never forget, and I treasure the time that I was ever to be in his presence when he came into Washington, D.C. Uh, for events and for African Liberation Day. And thank you so much for uh, everybody, uh, for the work that you are doing, the work that you have done, and the work that continues to be done because, of course, we know that there's much work that has to be done. Thank you. Thank you. And we thank you, sister, as well. Next, we'll go to our brother, John Steinbeck. Introduce yourself and welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother John. Yeah, thank you, Brother Africa, and uh, it's uh, an honor to be here with all your distinguished guests. Um, So I think that Kwame Ture's greatest contribution to me was his message to white activists, and he said that 
I want you to go and organize your own community. You know, don't try to tell us what to do. And he said more than that. He taught me about solidarity. He said that you have to organize, you have to become autonomous. And then once you're autonomous, then we can work together as allies in the struggle. And organize and together. Organize so, together. To, to me, that was the most important thing that that, that he that, that he that he gave that to, he me gave to me personally. So, and his message has informed my my work over the years, uh, starting back in the late 60s at University of Michigan in '69, and in the Black Action Movement strike. And then getting involved in the community. And I've been a community person ever since. And and Kwame understood that the movement was the movement. And that it included uh, against capitalism, against imperialism, uh, and working across issues. So, for example, uh, he would show up at an environmental protest. He'd show up at an anti-nuclear protest. And, uh, and, and he was constantly pushing unity and struggle. And, and I think the last thing that I want to say is that I believe that Kwame Ture would be absolutely appalled at the way, at the way ID, politics ID politics are being used today, silo-type politics are being used today to divide the movement and to divide the community. And we have to guard against this. We have to understand that the struggle must continue, and the only way we're going to succeed is when we unite together in struggle to defeat capitalism, defeat imperialism. So that's all I want to say tonight. Thank you, Brother John. And we next go to Brother Mayo. Brother Mayo, introduce yourself. And again, welcome back to Africa on the Moon, Brother Mayo. Thank you, Brother Thank Africa. You, Brother Africa. I'm, I'm Melvin Webster Smith. Smith. I'm, uh, I'm born in uh, Southern in Virginia, Brunswick County, County, and uh, have, uh, have uh, lived and gone to school in. Up the East Coast, East Coast Philadelphia, Philadelphia uh, and the Massachusetts, Massachusetts uh, Springfield, Massachusetts area where I now reside. And in the meantime, some years in Oakland, California, and Washington, D.C., and surrounding Maryland. Uh, also, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, at one time early years after uh, my my birth in in Virginia, living there with my paternal family. And I mention that because I have uh, been in many locales through the years, and uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, has been a part of my life because we are of the, the same age, uh, I having been born at the first of the month of June and he being born at the, the end of June in the same year of 1941. And uh, I first heard of him during a break of uh, 
my college years, my undergraduate years, when I was living with a group of students in an apartment in Washington, D.C., Howard University students, I was taking a, a break, but they were they were in, in, in school, one of them being a homeboy from Philadelphia, from my Philadelphia teenage years. And these students mentioned the name Stokely Carmichael, being on campus as being somebody who was very active. And, uh, you know, my apartment mates uh, and their girlfriends were not a part of that at all. This Stokely Carmichael was a, a different sort of cat. Uh, you know, my, my, my group, my mates there were bourgeois party time students and were not into any of that that this Stokely Carmichael was up to. But I heard the name, and uh, it stayed with me uh, throughout because uh, of a number of things, not the least of which was my own uh, activism, beginning to be involved in the uh, anti-war movement, having been uh, a conscientious objector, having applied and having done alternate civilian service rather than go to Vietnam uh, after being drafted because of my being out of school during those years. The draft notice came, and uh, I was able to file for conscientious objection and, uh, and uh, acquire that, that status and performed alternate civilian service. But during that time, making application for it, I came to know more about what the war was about and what more of what uh, U.S. imperialism than about, and in that way became uh, more of a, an active activist in the uh, anti-war movement and uh, found some common ground with uh, more common ground in addition to the, the southern uh, uh, movement of SNCC and, and CORE and, and the rest. Uh, in addition to that, SNCC's uh, uh, stance on the war, early anti-Vietnam uh, stance, and Stokely uh, Carmichael's involvement in that, of course, gave me more common ground. Now, through the years, I paid more attention to, to what had been happening in SNCC. I understood much about the Southern Movement because I had lived there and raised uh, in Virginia from uh, the time early, early years, second, second grade on into the late years of high school. And I knew much about that segregated situation and had lived, uh, even though my situation was more insulated than the normal uh, African-American situation in the South, I understood much of it. And so, but I was not one who was inclined to go to go south uh, unarmed in, in, in that uh, situation and uh, declaring nonviolence and uh, uh, to the extent that uh, that Stokely and the others did. Although I admired them for it, I did not have that kind of courage. I was about some other things uh, as well. And through the years, other developments uh, made me uh, pay more attention to uh, what Stokely uh, was about. And one of the things I was 
most impressive about was through the years as people attempted to smear him in particular. The more prominent he became, the more effective he was, and uh, the more unwavering uh, he was, showing the kinds of characteristics that uh, Professor Harry Edwards had once uh, told me uh, were uh, the uh, criteria for outstanding uh, personages, and I have uh, accepted that. It says there are three, three characteristics, three great traits of the great person, and having uh, uh, intelligence, courage, and integrity. And those those three traits, uh, yeah, yes, Stokely had, and uh, Kwame uh, had, and uh, he was, uh, and because of that, there were attempts to smear him. One of the earlier things was to try to declare him to be a misogynist uh, because he had made a joke at a at a retreat, a SNCC retreat down in uh, southern Mississippi or Alabama. Uh, one year, and he, he made a joke to the crew about uh, the uh, the position of uh, women in SNCC, and uh, uh, everybody knew it was a joke and was laughed, and everybody knew that. Uh, you know, most, you know, so there was no uh, uh, no uh, uh, male chauvinist uh, at, at all. Uh, never was, but he could joke about it because he wasn't. But folks tried to use that kind of thing against him. In, 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 in later years, uh, you know, particularly when uh, Pan-Africanism uh, became more, more evident in, in his work, uh, uh, they attempted to uh, smear him by putting a rumor that, that uh, Stokely's Stoke, Stoke is an agent. Stokely's an agent. And that rumor began to circulate among uh, 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 activist uh, groups. And uh, I can recall just who had uh, put that rumor out to me and when and where. I never forgot it. And uh, it was all, I was always mindful of it. And the, and the person who had um, had put it out, much of that has become clear uh, through the years. And it's uh, quite evident how the, the oppressor works with his minions to... Uh, to discredit those who are uh, actively engaged in liberation. And Kwame Ture was that, continued to be that, always was. I saw him across the country in those places that I mentioned that I lived through the years. Uh, in Boston, uh, Kwame Ture came uh, back from Guinea to speak, and, and uh, I, I, I found out and, and got to hear him. I never met him. I never, never worked with him. Uh, but I did go and listen. And uh, I was considered him a kindred spirit, but he became a, a, a guide and even mentor in his 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 words, his speeches, his direction, his consistent organizing and uh, uh, teaching about what we are, where we need to go. And in that, he had much support from others who had been doing much of that with us uh, 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 
among whom was the nation of Islam and uh, Elijah Muhammad, who provided him, as I understand, with some some support and protection in in in, in places uh, in here in the United States, and was very supportive of him because of his his work for liberation and. Uh, this is uh, just some of what he has meant to me as being in the pantheon of the greats. And it has with uh, the long list that include Marcus Garvey, W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, the uh, Malcolm X, and, 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 and there is Kwame, Sophie Carmichael, Kwame Ture. I am uh, I'm just pleased that uh, I can participate with you in this tribute to him, and uh, I only wish that uh, I, I, I might take more time to, 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 to say very much more, but uh, so many others have said so many great things, true things, brought out the history, and uh and uh, I, I, I don't need to, to, to say any more. But thank you for this opportunity and thank you for the tribute. Thank you, Brother Mia. Next we go to Brother Moses. Introduce yourself. The mic is yours. Brother Moses, are you there? Okay, why are we waiting? Okay, um, yeah, it's good. It's good that there was a uh, program yesterday uh, with Parvin Turek. Certainly, he did a lot to contribute to the liberation of African people and humanity in general. And uh, I got an opportunity to listen to some of the show today, and I missed yesterday. Uh, and I think, thank that I was available, that it is available online. Um, I don't really have anything to say right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. We next go to Brother Neil. Brother Neil, introduce yourself and make your statement. Brother Neil. Uh, yeah, this is uh, uh, Neil and like Brother Mel. I grew up in, in Virginia. I grew up in the rural area, too. And, uh, and uh, to me, Kwame Ture is one of the most important, most important people in the, people in the uh, 20th, century. Uh, 20th century. He was always, he was at, always the at the forefront of some, of some major changes. Major changes. When, uh, when, uh, when the uh, movement to, uh, to uh, go struggle for you know, uh, uh, civil rights civil in, rights in the, the South, he was one of the uh, people who left early as a teenager when um, when the need to struggle against uh, 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 the war in Vietnam. He took a position early, and he was strategically important in forcing the civil rights movement in a large part to take that position and, and other forces. Uh, he also, uh, he also uh, was on the leading uh, edge of the struggle around black power, black power. and most importantly, most importantly, he was on the leading edge of, 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 of fighting for, fighting for uh, true pan-Africanism, total, total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. socialism, and he was one of the people who really, who really kept Kwame and Nkrumah's work alive. Work alive. 
I first heard of, uh, you know, Kwame Ture. Everybody heard of him back in the day, you know, on television. But I remember one day I was a teenager, and I was listening to the radio station. It was a soul radio station called WANT, and they interrupted the whole thing, the whole music. And we listened to the speech from, from Mississippi, from that march against fear, and Kwame got up, Kwame got up and he spoke, and he, spoke and he gave his he gave black power black speech. Power speech. And, when and when I heard that speech, I, heard I said, the world will never, never be the same. I had a cousin had at a that cousin time who was going to school, school at, uh, at Norfolk, Norfolk State. State. And I saw him and doing I like a spring break or something and a Christmas break or sometime. And he was talking to me because Kwame had spoken at their school. And uh, he was telling, he was breaking down what he had said, how impressed he was with what he had said. So he was kind of on my radar. Uh, also, like Brother Mel, I, I ended up in Cincinnati. I was there for graduate school. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and I was looking at different avenues. And uh, one day I read this article that Kwame wrote in the um, Black Scholar. And he was talking about inclusion and so forth and so on. And we wrote a letter, and he came and, oh, he sent, you know, they, not to Kwame, but the party sent, the HRP sent some folks down from Columbus and oriented us into the AAPRP. That was in 1974. And in that AAPRP, I got a political education that was second to none. Kwame Ture was, Kwame Ray an, was excellent an excellent teacher. teacher. He was, um, he was um, uh, uh, in terms of political thinking and political thought, and also in terms of how you organize. And he imprinted on that organization and other organizations that came out of it, you know, a certain style of work. A certain style of work that says you do the work, you keep moving, you're not trying to get, uh, you know, you're not trying to become famous and all this kind of stuff. It's a certain kind of work, and that work style comes directly from uh, Kwame Ture. He was a very uh, patient person, and he was excellent at organizing a meeting. I've been in meetings where he chaired a meeting. It might be 60, 70 people in the meeting, and, and, and you got work done. Everybody was heard, you know, because you had that, you know, everybody had the right to speak, you know, according to uh, our principles of egalitarianism, et cetera. And so he carried that out. And like uh, I think as Bob said, at, at the end, he struggled to the last second or the last minute for the last hour, the last day. So he was always on the job. Uh, so I think his work is of highest, you know, of highest value because, you know, and as, as Sam Bosa pointed out, you know, you know, you got people writing books now and they talk about Stoker Carmichael and so forth. And they, and they never talk about a Baraka as Leroy Brown, or they never talk about some of the other people with, with their slaves now, but somehow they want to keep Kwame in 1966. And and the bulk, as Van Bosen the most largest part of his life, and the most important part of his life, was building this Pan-Africanism. 
So I think his his life as as, as what you call a person uh, that you strive to uh, work like to be to walk in their um, the footsteps. He had an important life. It's one that we can all emulate and 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 and, and to keep. To push the positive, to keep going forward, forward ever. I think uh, all of that to me is uh, is Kwame Ture. So his work is permanent. He always talks about permanence, building permanent organizations. You know all of this kind of stuff. So this is this is uh, this to me is who Kwame Ture is. Thank you, Brother Nia. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Introduce yourself and make your statement, Brother Haki. Yeah, Brother Africa. Yeah, brother. My name is Haki Kamaki Mishoki. I'm with African Awareness. And, and you know, I won't replicate what people say with respect to Kwame, but one of the things about Kwame that stood out for me was, you know, his, uh, his bravery. You know, one of the things growing up in the South as a kid, you know, uh, I was accustomed to seeing people being afraid of white people. And so irrespective of what white people would do to them, they were, they were, they were very afraid. And so, I, you know, I, unfortunately, I had a father who was very nationalistic and unafraid. And so, you know, he would take a stand. So those kind of people are very, very rare in my life. So when Kwame came around and demonstrated his fearlessness, I said, wow, what, what kind of brother is this? I, I like this guy. And so when he was in Richmond, he came to the house and he spoke to, my, to, to, to the family. Uh, my, mother, uh, my mother was there along with some, some of the kids. And uh, he spoke to us in terms of the need in terms of struggling society. And one of the things that you know, he emphasized in terms of perseverance, because I asked him, I said, as a, as, as a youth, I said, listen, do you ever get tired in terms of you know, dealing with this stuff? A lot of people don't pay you any attention, do they? He, he said, well, you know, that's all part of the struggle. You know, he's, you know, but in time, they come around and understand and the relevance of what you have to say. So here's that kind of perseverance thing that also stood out for me in terms of Kwame. So whenever I feel like I want to give up and say, you know what, I done had enough of this, I'm done with it, I think about Kwame. So that's what keeps me going. So he's been a big inspiration in my life in terms of you know, my longevity, in terms of the struggle, in terms of my willingness to engage, even though when the situation on the surface may appear hopeless. Okay. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we will go to Brother Anthony. Introduce yourself and make a statement. Yes, revolutionary yes. greetings, Africans, and 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 comrades who have expressed this their admiration for Brother Kwame Ture. I had the privilege of working with Brother Kwame Ture as an organizer in the All African People's Revolutionary Party during the last 15 years of his life. And it was an honor and a privilege to have such an opportunity. Uh, the thing I remember most about um, Kwame is his steadfastness, consistency, and determination against uh, all odds allies to achieve pan-Africanism, one unified socialist Africa. And uh, I think that that is the most important about, uh, uh, thing about his legacy. His struggle against all manifestations of capitalism, including racism, imperialism, Zionism, colonialism, settler colonialism, neocolonialism. 
and uh, and we must continue in that struggle, and that is the most important important part of his work. Uh, very often, the capitalist media leaves out the most the, the most important aspect of his life. The, those last thirty years he spent trying to build uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, which Kwame Nkrumah called for in the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare, and he dedicated his life to achieving that. And um, what and uh, and if you look at his life throughout his life, he dedicated himself to the emancipation and liberation of all people, especially African people and oppressed people throughout the world. And um, and um, the struggle continues and intensifies. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to, to share my experiences with Kwame Ture before this, uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, these distinguished organizers and revolutionaries. Thank you, Brother Africa, for this opportunity. Okay, we thank you, Brother Anthony. And at this point in time, we're going to take a revolutionary station break. And when we come back, we're going to add each one of our participants who are still with us. If you think of one word that would describe the legacy of Brother Kwame Ture. So we'll be right back. We will continue this tribute to Brother Kwame Ture. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. 
For more than 30 years, the Piscataway Indian Nation singers and dancers have been touring the world in an attempt to break stereotypes and educate others about the history of their people. Their leader and narrator, Mark Tyak, is the son of a 28th generation Piscataway chieftain. When his father passes, it will be his turn to lead his tribe. During a ceremonial war dance, James Edwards displays the American Indian virtue of mercy by not striking his target. Steve Conway demonstrated what is called a men's grass dance. These were often used by American Indians to flatten grassy plains before making camp. Here Eagle Boy Co. leads sophomore elementary education and engineering major Melissa Zichkowski in a rabbit dance, traditionally done by couples. Conley took the stage yet again to demonstrate a ring dance, an age-old tradition of forming shapes with rings, things like eagles, turtles, and the world. Co. performed an eagle dance while Tayek explained. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. I'm all about peace and love. Important line there, I'm all about peace and love. Yeah, okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay, one nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, Let me give you a hint. Cutter? It is not Luxembourg. Not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Lumumba was democracy. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure.
back to Wacking You Back to Africa on the Move. 22 years ago, our brother Kwame Ture made his transition, November 15, 1998. We are giving our proper respect to our brother and in closing the program. What we want to do with some of our participants tonight as we head towards closing out this program and in remembrance of Brother Kwame Ture, Revolutionary Forever, is that we would like to ask each one of y'all to think about Brother Ture's legacy to you, what it meant to you, and describe one word that would best describe Brother Kwame Ture's legacy. We start with you, Sister Tage. If you could say one word that would best describe Brother Kwame Ture's legacy, what would it be to you? Of course, organized. Organized, okay. And also at this point in time, we do have two quick new callers who have called in. We've been trying to get them in real quickly. As we bring you in, caller, we're going to introduce your last four numbers. And please state your name and make your statement as it relates to how you can best honor Brother Kwame Ture and his legacy. We can bring in caller 4879-4879. Welcome to Africa on the moon. The statement, Brother Kwame Ture, call 4879. Greetings. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, this is Sister Moremi Adeyemi. Um, I'm living right now in uh, Richmond, Virginia, but I was, um, I was fortunate enough uh, to be able to work with Kwame for a good part of my life. And I can only say that he was a prolific mobilizer, organizer, educator. Um, I saw him move the, the ideas, the minds, the hearts, and the actions of African people in various parts of this world. And, and in a few instances I was with him as a former member of the Central Committee of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. And uh, we're, we're going to be hearing more and more from him as time goes on. You know, sometimes you don't appreciate um, our warriors, you know, who have the ideas that can continue to motivate us. We don't appreciate them early enough, but I think as time goes on, we're going to see more and more people begin to understand that the ideas that he lived and died for, you know, um, um, the, the motivation for those motivation are, are still alive and well, and we still have a lot that we can gain and learn. You know, by studying him, uh, the organization that he helped to start that's still alive, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party in various parts of the world. So um, I, I work with young people. I teach at the university, and the chances I get to see them, you know, grab a hold of his words and his ideas are very, very motivating. And I, I, and I can say the best is yet to come in terms of the impact that he has had and he will continue to have upon the African world and the struggle. Thank you, Sister Mormy. And Sister Mormy, while we have you, if you could think of one word that would best describe Brother Kwame's legacy, what would that be? It's not one word. I'm thinking of another brother who was close to him, but the two of them together, pray for a revolution, ready for the revolution. That's what I think about All right. Thank you, sister, for your contribution to today's program. And we can go to this caller. Caller, we can call out your last four number. Caller 4380. Caller 4380. Introduce yourself and make your statement. Yeah, yeah, Brother Lee. This, this is Mel. 
got Kwame Legacy to to you? Uh, I think it's a word that's being used uh, a lot today uh, in, uh, in this movement, movement of, peoples of peoples around all the around issues, all and that represents uh, uh, him. He is a, a manifestation of it, transformative. Okay, transformative. Hi, my brother. We thank you again for your contribution right. to today's right. program. We go to Brother McCarthy. Brother McCarthy, what's your one word? Africa. 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 Africa, I hear that. All right, brother. Africa, one word, Africa. Excellent. Next, we'll go to brother Bamboshi. Give us your one word or best would describe brother Kwame to a legacy. I would say it would have to be fidelity, fidelity to the cause of Africans and Africa. And I agree with brother Mukasa. It's Africa. It's Africa. Okay. Thank you, Brother Bambuji, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Moses, what would be your one word? I think he was courageous. I, I think courageous is the word I go with. Courageous? Okay. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Neil, your one word. Uh, my one word is consistency. You were consistent, didn't get sidetracked. Stayed on point. Mm. All right. Thank you, Brother Neil. Brother Haki, your one word. Perseverance. Despite the threats against his life, he continued. Perseverance. And Brother Anthony, your one word and the final thought on how can they support the nature of the work of the AAPRPGC. Determined, Determined would be my would one, be word. one word. And people and can people support can the work of the, the All African, African People's Revolutionary Party, Party GC by visiting, by our, visiting website our website to learn more learn about more our work about and, our history, and history and by joining and, by and, joining and, and joining a Pan-Africanist pan organization. organization. And that is an organization that is struggling for one unified socialist Africa. And we thank you, Brother Anthony. We thank all our participants, all our callers, and always all our supporters. This is Africa on the Move. It's a weekly program that comes on every Sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We speak truth to power. And we are a voice for the voices. We are a voice for the African community. If you have any important information that you need to share with our community, we are here for you. We know that without information, our people cannot think. And we know that without organization, our people cannot think clearly. We want to do two things that Brother Kwame Ture always expressed to us. That is what? To join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people and humanity. And this other thing is to give our people revolutionary information so we can become more political, educated, and conscious. So with political education... At organization, we know all things are possible. So at this point in time, Africa on the Moon, we'll go to the primary source, that's where our brother Kwame Ture, and we will play some of the lessons that he has left for us to learn and study by. We thank you. We'll see you next week. Long live brother Kwame Ture, revolutionary forever.
The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly, if one is here for revolution, and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while the reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system based on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. 
Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. But that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. You're one black man who went to a good, essentially white high school in the city of New York. That's you right. obviously had had a good education. That's a good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing. And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out. And that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do with the unwillingness or inability of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That is correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said? I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by Racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people. And that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money, what is your feeling about him? Well, I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course, they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to him, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems. And you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been un civilized. Civilize yourself. We here are revolutionaries, and we understand as revolutionaries that we stand on principles. You must not get confused. The American capitalist system does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. It's a fact everywhere. 
Matter of fact, you will read in your very textbooks that they say politics is the art of compromise. Another lie. I'm a revolutionary. I understand that where principles are involved, there is no compromise. Osagifo, Kwame Nkrumah, that noble son of Africa, says any compromise of principle is an abandonment of principle. When one speaks of principle, there is no middle ground. There is no gray area. There is no in-between. It's either one side or the other. When the capitalist press want to attack the all-African people's revolutionary party, they tell people all the time, don't you all go listen to them. They're crazy. Especially that one Kwame Ture, he was crazy in the 60s. He's crazier in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, they call Malcolm crazy, so they're not going to call me sane. <laughs> and I'll never be sane in a system that's insane. That's clear. <laughs> They said, oh, he's just extremist. You know, for him, everything is one side or the other. It's either white or black. Ain't nothing gray. It's either hot or cold. Ain't nothing warm. It's either wet or dry. Ain't nothing damp. They're correct. We're revolutionaries, and we fight for principles, and there is no compromise. You know this well as students. When you recount a story, either you lie or you tell the truth. Where's the middle ground? On a test, either you cheat or you do not. There is no gray area. And there ain't no such thing like, I did a little cheating on the test. <laughs> Either you believe in God, or you do not. But the capitalist system will confuse you. A sister the other day tried to make middle ground, said, oh, I heard what you said about God, but let me tell you something. It's true that I believe in God, but I have my doubts. I told her, once you start doubting God, you have stopped believing in God. There is no middle ground in principle. If your people are oppressed... And you are not struggling to help alleviate the sufferings of your people. By your very active in actions, you are against your people. The point must be properly comprehended. The point must be properly driven home. Because the capitalist system will let you think that I ain't against the people, but I ain't doing nothing for them. If you ain't doing nothing for them, you're against them. If your mother is being raped, and you put your hands behind your back, and you look at the television and say, I ain't got nothing to do with it, you're against your mother. If your people are being raped and you're looking at television enjoying a time, you're against your people. It's as simple as that. The only way we will advance as a people is when we come ourselves to take our advancement into our hands in a scientific manner. For us, there is no in-between on socialism or capitalism. We know this. Socialism is nothing but an economic system like capitalism. There can only be two in the world, only two. And there can only be two because each economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the means of production? Who will own and control the wealth of the country? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everybody will own. It's as simple as that. Of course, they will confuse you. America prides herself on being the richest country in the world. She ought to be. She's the biggest thief in the world. <laughs> Stole my mama. That's right. I know what I'm talking about. She'd be a little skewed, but because Cuba's a poor country, big that. Like if something has to do with how much money you get, even if you steal it. Well, in America, you know, it's so corrupt that everybody makes money by stealing, but the more you get, the less people ask you how you got it. <laughs> so they come to condemn Fidel Castro. Some people even think that because Cuba is poor, America can just walk in there and shoot them up. Vietnam was poor. That's right. Vietnam was very poor. When I was in Vietnam, North Vietnam, because, you know, I didn't go to fight the Vietnamese. They ain't did me nothing. I know my enemy. I'm not confused. <laughs> I'm not confused. When they call me, listen, I was in Mississippi getting terrorized trying to get my people to vote. They called me up in New York in the draft board. What you call me for? Well, you got to go to Vietnam and fight for democracy and give them the right to vote. <laughs> and they said it with a straight face. 
<laughs> All right, thank you. I never got confused with them. No. But the Vietnamese whooped America on one bowl of rice a day. That's right. I don't know what makes them think the Cubans can't whoop them on half a bowl. <laughs> and as for all you little Cubans out, you always planning. Look here, they've been planning on Castro since the Bay of Pigs. Let them plan on. <laughs> they will keep on planning. Fidel Castro is a great man, and all people who love justice respect him. Look at the situation. Cuba is a poor country, of that there is no question. But do you know in Cuba, every child from the time they're born until they die will have perfect health care free of charge to every level. They won't even pay for medicine. It's a poor country. Cuba is a poor country, but if you were a student in Cuba, you wouldn't pay a penny for your education. Not a penny. When you look at poor Cuba and see his concern for its citizens, and you look at rich America and see its homeless, of which Cuba has none, you can see the difference between capitalism and socialism. Socialism is an inevitable system. Don't you worry about these Cubans out here. Listen, they have so much disrespect for us that you know they're the only group in the country that picketed Mandela. I mean, more poor Mandela. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, if they pick at Mandela, what are they going to do to me? <laughs> well, Mandela's calling for peace. I'm calling for shotgun. Fire them up. Shoot them all. In our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa... They seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then, for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masters must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clairpoise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masters will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people the organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. 
We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. It will be solved. There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. 
Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, America notwithstanding. It must come. And Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the mass of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chumpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> yes. If you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> so we must not be confused here socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal no system does the person who betrays themselves goes to the mud but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on if a system fell because of betrayal Christianity would have been finished with Judas at least Judas had the dignity to hang himself yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? 
who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please, please summarize that we might have... No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry. Maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching it. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm a rev revolutionary. I go by time. I got my clock right here. fact, I can say it in two words. Black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course, and me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. Conscious, becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because 
the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost her job. Let's rally. She will get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who have been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there, I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. Twitter, 
the Malcolm X Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we go?